grab your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8, or if you want to follow along on the screens behind me, that would work as well. Uh, as you're turning there this morning, I want to encourage you, maybe a few of you, maybe most of you were here a couple weeks ago when we had uh, our church plant, Oak City Church, up here on the stage and we were praying for their core group. Do you remember that? Well, right now they are meeting in Bartow for their very first public worship service. And so it's, it's a very exciting day. Amen. Put your hands together. So, uh, Yes, we, we have a daughter church as of today, so it's a very exciting time. We're uh, really grateful for what the Lord has done. Uh, we're excited to see what he's going to continue to do as uh, he builds his church in Bartow and builds a beautiful Bartow uh, through that church. And so uh, you can continue to celebrate. There's a few of our people there uh, today joining in, them, or joining in the celebration for their first service, but I'd also encourage you over the next few weeks or months, if you have a free week, uh, to go down to Bartow, we would love for people from Strong Tower to go visit, enjoy it, celebrate with them, uh, and encourage them uh, in their, their worship time together. 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're going to be looking at the verses uh, 1 through 10. 1 through 10, we're, we'll really cover the whole chapter, but we're going to stop at verse 10 for our reading. Hear the reading of God's Word. When Samuel became old... He made his sons judge over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijam. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, a new king, a new king. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that uh, as we gather here today around your word, that your spirit is here amongst us and your spirit is here to testify to the truth of the gospel, to point us towards Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would do just that. Holy Spirit, move us in the direction of the Son. Help us to have a mind and a heart full of the Lord Jesus Christ through your word today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The war of 1812 was in its final months, and Francis Scott Key was an American lawyer and an amateur poet. And while he was negotiating with some of the British soldiers for some of the American prisoners, 
he boarded a, a ship, and while he was on the ship, there was an ambush, and they, he witnessed the, the tragic event of, of the ambush of Fort McKinley. And uh, while he's watching this happen, he's watching the destruction, uh, he's watching you know, lives being lost, he's watching things being destroyed, he notices and is inspired by an American flag that is flying amidst all the destruction, an American flag is flying above the fort. And it inspires him, and he goes back to his room, and he writes a poem down. And within a few days, that poem is put to music, and the, the music and the poem together become the song that we now call the Star Spangled Banner. And the Star Spangled Banner would then later become the national anthem of the United States in 1931. Now, if you've heard the Star Spangled Banner, which I'm sure you have at some point in your life, you know that the song is notorious for being difficult to sing. It is notorious to where if you've heard it, you've probably heard someone mess up the notes. You've probably heard or seen a video of someone messing up the notes on the national anthem. And so people will sometimes, when they sing it, they will get to that point at the end of the song and they'll back away, they'll, they'll chicken out, or they'll go for it, and it doesn't go well. But you know what I'm talking about. It comes to that climax in the song where you, you hit that, that verse, and I'm not going to try, don't worry, I'm not going to try, and it says, the land of the free, right? And they hold out that note on free. And if you've ever been to a sporting event where they're singing the song, that's when the crowd erupts and cheers, and you know they, they have the flag flying on the screens, and everyone's excited because everyone wants to shout at that point, freedom! I mean, there's some, there's some words in the song after that, but that, that, that's the climax. No one, no one cares what comes after that. That's when people are cheering. They're not listening after that because the climax has come and gone. Because what we cheer for is freedom. What we celebrate is freedom. But what, what exactly is freedom? You ever, you ever thought about that? What, what exactly is freedom? What does that mean? I mean, for one thing, Francis Scott Key, who wrote the song, hear this for a moment, he owned eight slaves at his death. What, what is the land of the free? I mean, when he wrote the song, what does he mean by freedom? What do we mean by freedom? There's, there's all kinds of questions that erupt when you start talking about this word that we almost take for granted, freedom. In fact, I would argue in our country, one of the the deepest values, if not the greatest value we hold, is this value of freedom. And yet, we can't agree on what freedom is. Some of the deepest divisions in our culture right now are really a divide over the definition of freedom. Some people would define freedom as government stays out of my life. And then other people would define freedom as the government comes into my life because I, I am at risk of health and financial uh, disaster. I need their help. Right? That, that's what it means for me to be free, to be free from health and financial risk. And then other people would define freedom as freedom from outsiders. And then others would find freedom as freedom to do whatever I want with my body. You see it? Like Everyone has the same value of freedom, supposedly, but we can't come up with a definition. What does it actually mean to be free? Now, 
I think the one thing that maybe most can agree on in our modern culture today is that freedom is some, some kind of uh, absence of limitations. In other words, it takes away the limits in your life. It takes away the restraints in your life. And so to be free means I have less limits, less constraints in my life. But what does that even look like? How does that even work? In other words, I think God has a different definition of freedom completely. And that's what I want to look at today. So we're, we're continuing our series today through the book of 1 Samuel. And last week, uh, Stephen preached a, a great sermon on the providence of God. And we looked at how God was working through the hard times in Israel. It was a tough time. The Philistines came in and took the ark of God from God's people. And, and so there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of pain. There was death. All kinds of terrible things happening. And yet God worked through those difficult times. Right? And so he talked about trusting the providence of God in those painful, suffering times. But the question is, what do you do on the back end of that? Right? And so now the story moves forward, and the people are starting to get a little anxious. They're starting to be a little concerned because the Philistines who did that before can do that again. Right? And so the Philistines are this constant threat to Israel. They had more money. They had more resources, they had better weapons, they had a bigger army. The Philistines were constantly hanging over the head of Israel, and they're wondering, when are they going to strike again? And now, the question is, how do we get free of the Philistines? What does freedom look like? So Israel wants to be free, but there's some confusion about what freedom really means. And so that's what I want to look at today. What does it look like to be free? If you're taking notes today, let's look at the, the problem of the rejection of God. That's going to be the first point, the rejection of God, the rejection of God. Look at me at verse 4 in the text. It says this, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. That's not the kind of thing you want to start with. Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, significant time has passed, right? Because in the previous chapter, Samuel was still the judge. He was still leading. And at this point, now Samuel is, is old enough that he's no longer able to do that job. And so he's passed on his job as judge to his sons. And his sons aren't anything like him. Samuel was righteous and he was faithful and he was listening to God and leading God's people by listening through uh, the scriptures. That, that's not how his sons were leading. His sons were leading with what the Bible says, perverting justice. They were taking bribes. They were all about themselves. They, they didn't care about the people, right? So this is what's happening. And then the elders come to, to Samuel and they say, look, you're too old to do your job and your sons have ruined everything. We need a change. This is not the freedom that we signed up for. And so they ask for a change. They demand a change. And what's the demand they change, or the, the change they demand? They ask for a change in government. We want a monarchy. We want a king. Now, here's the tension in the text. Because there's a complication here when they ask for a king. Because number one, God had already promised his people to have a king. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, look at what God says, or listen to what he says. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. 
one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. So God, back in Deuteronomy, through Moses, commands the people, lets them know you're going to have a king one day. And then uh, the book of Judges, which is right before this, is basically all about the need for a king. The refrain throughout the book of Judges is, there was no king, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The whole point of Judges is they need a king. So listen, God promises a king, he shows them they need a king, and then they ask for a king, and it's negative. What, what is going on here? How, how does that make any sense? In fact, Samuel, it says, when he hears their request, he was displeased. He, he was saddened. He, he was despairing over what they said because, first of all, he took it personally. You ever done that before? You know, you, you ever take something personally that had nothing to do with you at all? But because it, it was just hard. It, it was hard to hear. It was, it was uncomfortable. But it really had nothing to do with you. I've never done it before. I don't know what you're talking about. No. But he takes it personal. And God comes to him and he says, no, 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 Samuel. This is not about you. Let me show you what this is about. And so look at verse 7. He tells him what's really happening. He says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. See, the problem wasn't their request. The problem wasn't having a king. The problem was they wanted a king that didn't require God. See, what, what the real problem was, was they no longer wanted to be under God's kingship, under his rulership. They didn't want to be under his rules. They didn't want to be under his oversight. They didn't want to, as Stephen said, trust the providence of God. That was a little too risky. They would rather have somebody else whom they could see in the flesh be their king. And so the problem wasn't that they wanted a king. The problem was they didn't want God to be their king. Their motive for a king was the problem. They redefined freedom as a life apart from God. You catch that? They redefined freedom and they rejected him. They rejected him. But listen, life apart from God is a false freedom. It's a false freedom. See, I don't know about you, but we all, I believe, want, want to be our own rulers. We, we want to be our own kings. We, we want to be our own uh, rule makers. We, we want to be the people in our life who call the shots. There's something about the human heart that craves independence. We, we want to be on our own. We want to be self-sufficient. We want to be able to show to somebody else, I can take care of myself. I don't need you in my life. I don't need you to provide for me. I don't need you to give me insight. I don't need you to give me rules and regulations and limitations. I can live my life on my own. And so any hint of something that seems like it might be weakness or seems like it might require dependence on or from us, it seems like that is something we're allergic to. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be near that, especially with God. Now, maybe you've been around the church a while, maybe you even call yourself a Christian, and you might think to yourself, I've, I've never outright rejected God. I, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't push him away like that. I, I don't want to say that I would want a life apart from God, but it's the truth. See, most of us, what we really want is we want a God who's beside us, not over us. 
You catch that? I, I want a God who's right beside me. Not over me, but beside me. And, and the reason I want a God who's beside me is because he'll be there when I, I need to turn to him for help. He'll be there when, when my life is troubled and there's, there's things going on with my kids that I can't control and, and the finances are looking bad or really, you know, maybe I messed up really bad and sinning, you know, some way in my life. What, whatever it was, I, I need to turn to God in my need. And so when I need comfort, I turn to him. When I need help, I turn to him. But I don't want a God who's over me. Because a God who's over me, he tells me what to do. A God who's over me doesn't just come beside me to comfort me, but he has authority in my life to tell me where I'm wrong, to tell me where I need to change, to tell me where my life doesn't match the life he has for me. Some of you today... Maybe you're, you're trying to figure out whether you want to give your life to God or, or, or what it looks like to follow Jesus, whatever language you want to use. You're here seeking. You're here trying to figure that out, what your life with God looks like. And maybe that's the biggest barrier for you. You see giving your life to God as, as a limitation. There, there, there's, it's going to limit your life. It's going to put restraint on your life. It's going, to, it's going to keep you from all the things you love doing and all the things you want to do. And so you're holding back because you're thinking, if I come to God, there's going to be more limitations and less freedom. I want to tell you right now, that is the lie that we all believe. It's the lie that we believe. Here's why it's a lie. And it's usually supported by uh, you know, past suffering. Just like Israel. Israel has just gone through a really difficult time. And on the, on the back end of that difficult time, now they're wondering, can I trust God to take me through that kind of trouble again? I mean, that, to be honest with you, that, that's the time where you start questioning, can I really serve God? Because I don't know if I want to trust Him like that. I don't know if I want to live with Him ruling my life. I think I can live my life on my own. I think I can do my own thing, make my own rules, live my own ways, and I can do this by myself. But listen, it doesn't go well. You think that there's freedom there, and there's not freedom. In fact, what happens to Israel is what they think is freedom ends up being bondage. There's a surprise of bondage. And this is the second point I want to look at, the surprise of bondage. Look at what God says to Samuel in verse 9. Look at what he says. It says, now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Listen, sometimes God grants our requests to reveal our hearts. Or, or to say it another way, sometimes God gives you what you ask for to show you who you are. He'll, he'll just give it to you. And he'll say, okay, this is what you want. He, here's what you asked for. Now listen, he, he's kind enough to at least warn you. He tells Samuel, go, go warn the people. Tell them what they asked for is not what they think they're asking for. Tell them what this king is going to be like. And this is what he says. He says the king that they're asking for is going to be characterized by one word. Take. Take. He says it six times. He repeats it six times. Verse 11, he says, he, the king, will take your sons. Verse 13, he will take your daughters. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields. Verse 15, he will take the tenth of your grain. Verse 16, he will take your workers. Verse 17, he will take your flocks, right? Over and over and over again, what is this king going to do? He's going to take 
from you. You think he's going to provide freedom, but he takes. All he does is take. And then Samuel concludes it like this in verse 17. Look at how it ends. He says, he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. See, what began as an approach to freedom, a, a hope and a desire for freedom, ends up in bondage. In fact, where they end up is right where they came from. It, it, it's an allusion to Egypt, right? Where they go, they're going back to Egypt. They're going back under a new Pharaoh. But this time, Pharaoh is not Egyptian. Pharaoh is an Israelite. He's going to be one of their own who enslaves their people. And God says, look, this, this is nothing new, Samuel. This, this is what my people have always done. In verse 8, he says, uh, he says, they've always forsaken me and served other gods. In other words, it, it's nothing new. It's, it's the old problem of idolatry. Freedom from God. Listen, freedom from God is always bondage to other gods. That's what it is. If you try to live a life apart from God, the reason it's a false freedom is because if you live free from God, you're going to be in bondage to some other god. Uh, my mom tells a story uh, of growing up as a little girl. Uh, her parents, my grandparents, bought her uh, some goldfish. And uh, she, she bought, or, or they bought her some goldfish. And, you know, she's a little girl. She's excited to see the goldfish, play with the goldfish. And, uh, and I think there were two or three goldfish. And they're trying to figure out why these goldfish weren't living very long. And, you know, goldfish don't live very long in general, but their life expectancy was a little longer than what they were seeing. And so they're wondering what's going on, and they keep buying more goldfish to, to replace the goldfish that were dying. And then they realized uh, at some point, my mom finally confessed when she was a little girl, she finally confessed to what she was doing. What happened was when they weren't looking, she would go to the fishbowl and she would put her hand in there, pull the fish out, and pet the fish. I mean, she's a little girl. She thought it was, you know, kind and sweet, and, and she wanted to share her love with the little fish. She wanted to set them free from the water. The problem is they need the limitations of the water to live. Right? They need the limitations, the constraints of the water to live their life and flourish and thrive. And so what seemed to her in her childlike mind like freedom was really death. It was really death. Listen, this, this is the irony. This is the irony of idolatry. Idols, they always promise freedom and they always deliver bondage. They always promise you, you can have no limits on your life. This will free you from all the things that are stressing you out. This will free you from all the things that you're worried about. This will free you from the pain and the displeasure. And then they deliver worse. They deliver worse. Now, you might be saying, I, I don't know if I have any idols in my life because I don't have any little statues or whatever. Well, if you're new to the Bible, the way the Bible talks about idolatry is, is different than just something that you might have in your living room on a mantle somewhere. Uh, idolatry is this. Idolatry is making a good thing into a God thing. 
It's taking something that God has designed for good, for your goodness, for your flourishing, and you take it, you twist it into an ultimate thing. And it's now become the most important thing. It's become the greatest, most uh, earnest thing in your life. It's an idol. And remember, it's always something good, right? God had promised Israel a king. God had said, I'm, I'm going to give you a king, and this king's going to rule and reign, and he's going to be good for you. But then they took that promise, that good thing that God had given them, and they twist it into a way to reject God. And now it's become an idol. Now it's become ultimate. Now it's become the most important thing that's going to save them. So you've got to ask yourself before we move on, what has become an idol for you lately? What has become an idol for you lately? What, what, what is the good thing that has now become the ultimate thing? What is the good thing that now you've twisted to, to be something that it was never really designed to be? I mean, there can be so many different ways we, we do that in our own lives. I mean, one of them that's probably the most obvious that many of us struggle with is, is materialism, right? Materialism, where, you know, you get obsessed with the latest and the greatest, and, and you know, you, you want to have all the things, you want to have all the signs of, of wealth, even if you don't have any money. I mean, there's, there's people who, whether you're wealthy, middle class, you're living in poverty, whatever it is, all of us can get sucked into that materialism where we're hoping that that thing that we buy, that thing that we have, will finally get rid of the loneliness, will finally get rid of the, the sadness, it'll finally get rid of whatever it is, the shame you feel in your life, and it doesn't deliver. Or maybe for you, it's, it's idolizing approval, and, and other people in your life rule your life. It could be your boss, it could be your spouse, it could be your coworkers, what, whatever, family members. But their approval is what matters most in your life. And so when they approve of you and they're happy with you, you're happy. But when they don't, you're devastated. Your life falls apart because you're nothing without their approval. Right? I mean, it could be all kinds of things, right? Ask yourself, what, what is that thing that's, that is good, but it's now been twisted to be ultimate? It could be pleasure, career, ministry, whatever. It's something in our lives is competing for that place of God's throne. But there's something beneath that idol. There's something deeper. It, it's a hunger for security. See, the reason you and I have idols in our life, the reason that we turn to these other things is because we are hoping that that idol can deliver what we think God is not delivering. We're hoping it can give us security where we're feeling insecure. We're hoping that it can, it can lead us to something that will give us relief. And here's the surprise of idolatry. It's always bondage. It's always bondage. The idol does nothing but take, take, take. That's all it does. There's never been an idol in your life that's given you more than it's taken. It will always take. And so you end up being a slave to approval. So now everything you do is about people's approval. Or you end up being a slave to ministry and now you're working for God, but you don't even have time to be with God. Or maybe you're, you're now a slave to your family's uh, expectations because they have, to, they have to see you in a certain light and they have to do certain things. Or, or you're a slave to your kids and you got to make sure that they're always happy and always have everything that they want. You see it? It starts to consume and take your life and it just keeps taking. 
So the question is, how do you get out of that bondage? If you're in the bondage of idolatry, how do you get out? We need the gift of redemption. This is the last point. The third point is the gift of redemption. Look at verse 19. It goes on to say this, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel, he, he tries to warn them, right? He tries to tell them that this is what the king's going to be like. He's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. This is what it's going to end up. It's going to end up in bondage. You don't want to do this. And they say, no, we're, we're going to do this. We want a king. I mean, there's this stubborn refusal. I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to hear what you have to say. We are going to have our king. And what you're seeing here is, is what some people call the education fallacy. The education fallacy is if you want to change your life or, or you know, do better in your life, what people need is they need education. They need to know better. If, if you want someone to do better, they need to know better, right? And education's good. We believe in that. We're all for it. It's good and necessary, but education is never enough. Listen, they knew and they still said no. They knew the consequences, and they still said no. They, they knew what was going to happen, and they still chose to reject God. They didn't lack knowledge. They lacked ability. They lacked ability. In 2021, uh, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife uh, posted a picture on uh, social media, and it went viral and uh, it, it was an interesting picture because you look at the picture and, and all you see is just a, a large rubber tire. And in the background, you see an elk, a large elk. And, and what happens is they tell the story in the post that uh, this tire was previously around the neck of the elk. And this is a large elk. It was a male bull and it was four years old, 600 something pounds. I mean, large elk. And at some point, the elk gets its head into a tire and it must have been younger because at this point, uh, it couldn't possibly have done that, but it, it was younger. And so it got its head into the, into the tire and it got stuck. And as, as the elk grew and got larger, the tire got tighter around its neck and its antlers you know, got larger. And so you couldn't get the tire off. No matter how hard that elk tried to pull it off, no matter how painful it was, no matter how often it was reminded of it, no matter what it did, that elk was not going to get the tire off its neck. And so thankfully, these, these uh, workers come along and they, they find this elk with the tire. And so to help the elk, they sedate the animal. And uh, while he's sedated, they, they carefully remove the tire off its neck. And then when it wakes up, it pops back on its feet and everything is fine. And and uh, what's fascinating, what's, what's really interesting is uh, the worst part of the story is the residents nearby after this, they reported that they saw the elk with the tire around its neck for over two years. For over two years. For two years, it carried around its neck this, this chain of, of bondage. It, it carried around its neck this weight that was weighing it down. For two years, it couldn't get free, no matter how hard it tried, no matter what other its elk buddies might ask or do, it, they did not have the ability to remove the tire. It needed somebody outside of it to come 
and to release him. See, our hearts without the gospel are in bondage to sin. What you're seeing in Israel is it's, it's responding to that challenge to say, don't do it, don't do it. And they say, no, we want to do it. Is there's this bondage to sin in our human heart where no matter what the knowledge is, no matter what the warning is, no matter what the effort is, we are going to choose without the gospel, we are going to choose to stay in bondage. We're going to choose it because we want it. There's something deep within us. We want that. We want a king over us. And this cry of Israel, listen, it's echoed later in redemptive history as Jesus stood before the crowd. In John chapter 19, Pontius Pilate is, is standing there with Jesus next to him, and there's a crowd out looking at Jesus, and Pontius Pilate says to the crowd, Behold your king. And what does the crowd say when, when Pontius Pilate says that? They say, No, away with him, crucify him, he's not our king. And then what do they say? Our king is the King Caesar. Right? In the cry of the moment, the, what, what, what's happening is you're seeing the cry of the human heart saying, I don't want God to be my king. Even if you present him to me as my king, I don't want him to be my king. Someone else has to come set us free from that bondage. That someone else has to be God himself. It has to be God himself coming from the outside. See, God gives himself freely for our freedom. That's the only way. It's the only way we can be set free is if God comes as our king to set us free from our bondage. That King Jesus who stood before the crowd that day was unlike any other king. He had told Pilate just a few moments before, my kingdom is not of this world. He is not a king like the nations. He is not a king like Caesar. Every other king and every other idol always comes to take. But Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Right? This king is unlike any other king. This is what makes Jesus holy. This is what makes Jesus different than anyone else. Jesus is unique amongst all the kings of the world. Every other idol, every other king that we set up in our life takes all we have. It wants to take all of our life. It wants to take all of our attention, all of our devotion until it's completely consumed us. And yet Jesus doesn't take. He comes to give. He comes to give, and not just to give anything. He comes to give everything. He says, I've come to give my very life as a ransom for you. See, a ransom is, is the payment that you would pay to set somebody free who couldn't free themselves. It's the payment that you would pay to pay someone's debt so that now they are completely clean, completely washed of their debts. Jesus came to pay our debt for our sin of rejecting God over and over and over again, a debt that we couldn't pay, a debt that we wouldn't pay, that we didn't even want to pay. Jesus came to set us free. See, we needed God himself to step into our place, to be our substitute, to take our place on a new throne, a cross, a cross. As the soldiers nailed him to the cross, he was pierced for our transgressions. As they raised him up naked before all to see, he was bearing our shame. As he was breathing his last breath, he was defeating death itself. Jesus, our King, was setting his people free forever. Forever. 
Do you need his freedom this morning? Do you need the true freedom that's only found in Jesus? Here is what's different about Jesus' freedom. It's secure. It's secure. Every other freedom that we try to seek in whatever idol it may be, it's always based on us. It's always based on our performance. If you perform well enough with money, if you perform well enough in the relationship, if you perform well enough in your career, if you perform well enough with your friendships, if you perform well enough, then it will give you freedom. But then when you don't, it fails. But the freedom found in Jesus is not about your performance. It's not about my performance. It's about him and him alone. Jesus says, I've come to set you free. And on the cross, he breathes his last. He says, it is finished. It's finished. The war is over. The battle is over. It's done. Your freedom is purchased. And now you can walk in it. It's secure. It's secure in what Jesus has done. And so how do you get that freedom? It's, it's as simple as faith. It's as simple as saying, Jesus, I'm, I'm going to put down my idols, all the other things I'm trusting in, all the other things that I've rejected you with, and I'm trusting in these things to be you. I'm going to turn away from that, and I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to trust in you as my Savior and as my King, because you are the one who has given me freedom that is unshakable, undeniable, true freedom. That's what it looks like to trust him. Let's pray. King Jesus, we bow our knees, bow our hearts. We come before your throne as your humble, humble, saved servants, redeemed by the blood of Christ, redeemed only because you've paid for us. We, as rebels against the king, we've rejected you. We've not wanted you, and yet you've wanted us. We've turned away from you, and yet you turned towards us. We've shouted at you and rejected you, and yet you came and died for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray that uh, as we repent of our idols and repent of our rejection of you, Lord, you would fill us with hope that really there's nothing we can do to turn you away from us ultimately. That if our faith is in you, no matter how many times we continue to turn away, as we trust you, you will save. You will save. As the Lord, I pray for those who right now are wrestling with that. They're, they are wrestling with whether they should trust in you fully, whether they should give their life to you and turn away from all the other things they've been trusting in. God, I pray you would give them faith. I pray you would turn around their life, turn it towards you, that there might be true freedom, set free from all the bondage of sin, set free from the bondage and the fear and the anxiety. Set us free, Lord. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.